Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Good morning. Good. Where are you today? Uh, good morning. Um, I am on the uh, southern coast of Oregon. Um, I'm just outside. Shoot, I forgot the little town. Coos, C-O-O-S, which is the biggest town um, on the coast. And is that near your sister's backyard? <laughs> I'm not in a backyard anymore. Um, No, I went to um, Medford. Um, I I finally left California. It was, you know, what I remembered is California is so beautiful. It really is a beautiful state. Um, Yeah, we'll talk about that that in a second. (laughs) I'm talking about beauty of the eye. Yeah, I know. Um, And... uh, and I was thinking about what you said, you're like, California really did used to be a paradise. But you know, when you and I kind of went our separate ways after you came to see me, I, um, I just was reminded, like, it's just, it's a really beautiful place. Um, so then I got into Oregon, and I went to Medford, and I was planning to go to Ashland. Um, but the woman I was going to go see in Ashland, her mother-in-law has cancer and her kids are more susceptible. And so she's very, you know, conservative and it was going to be my birthday. And I was like, I don't really want to spend time worrying about COVID or wearing a mask today. So I ended up staying another night in Medford. Um, and these are the people that I went and spent three weeks with when I was in my, um, assist phase of, uh, training for, to study and get my license as a midwife here in California. Um, and you know, you create bonds with people that you go to births with. Um, so we saw a lot of shit in those three weeks. There were like 14 births or something and shoulder dystocia, hemorrhage, resuscitation. <laughs> I saw a lot of stuff with these women. So, um, and one of them, Willa, who owns the birth center, it's the Rogue Birth Center in um, Grants Pass. Um, she is recovering from breast cancer. So, you know, it was really lovely to see her and spend time with her and for us to just talk about, you know, all the stuff that's going on in our lives. But now the last few days I've been driving up the coast and I have a, a view of the ocean out my window and the other window, it's all forest and the Oregon coast is pretty magnificent. Well, it's good to see you. Welcome everybody. Um, I wanted to hear oh. this first, but I want to welcome everybody to the Birthing Instincts podcast again. Um, I want to preview what we're going to talk about today so you can notice, pay attention to everything that we're going to say. We're going to catch up on some things that we talked about the last podcast, and we're going to, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about a twin article that I mentioned last time. Uh, I've got two news articles I want to talk to. Obviously, we're going to men- mention the, uh, the uh, experimental injection and I'm going to talk a little bit about the, some of the absurdities that are going on with the use of language. Um, I got I, I got a request for a home delivery from a woman with quads, so <gasps> I, will, I will bring that up briefly. There's not much to say about that, but I, I would 
in a, in a perfect world, I'll talk to you about that in a second. And uh, then we're going to get uh, onto the path of um, the path of how somebody becomes a midwife. And I may briefly discuss how to become a doctor, but not exactly sure that our our audience is really curious about that. But we'll, you know, I could probably sum that up in two sentences. Uh, that's what we're going to do today. So before I get started, I, I I know that you're in paradise right now, and you're dealing with uh, nature and the ocean and the forest and California and Oregon really are beautiful states, but yesterday my state decided to get a little bit closer to committing suicide, I think. Um, and people know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's a week ago now, but but uh, yesterday was the California recall election, which turned out to be a complete disaster. And I'm very depressed about it because I want to stay here in California. Uh, it's where my kids are. It's where I... I my practice has been where my friends are, where my colleagues are, but I'm not sure that I can. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast, and I'm not really not sure that if this many people in my state voted to commit suicide, they don't think it's committing suicide, but I, but I do, because the state has been spiraling downhill for the last 30 years, um, or at least since I've been here. It was, it was really a paradise when I first got here in the early 80s, and I'm sure it was in the 60s and 70s even more so. Um, but now it's, it's filled with things that are not desirable. And yet we're, we didn't do anything to change our path yesterday. So, um, it's a little, a little, uh, problematic for me. I'm not in a great mood today, but hearing from you always puts me in a good mood, Bliss. So thanks. You're welcome. Yeah. Oh, and happy birthday. Belatedly, obviously now, um, I wanted to record on your birthday, but then you decided you weren't going to do that. So I was going to sing to you, but now it's too belated, so I can't, but everybody um, send Bliss birthday wishes if you didn't already, because- Oh, I got so much love on my birthday. Thank you, Stu. I forgot to mention it was my birthday because uh, yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I was listening, you and I listened to a lot of audiobooks, and I was listening to this book. Um, it's called The Mutant Message Down Under. It's a very interesting story about a doctor who uh, ends up walking in the outback with the Aborigines and learning from them. Very, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, you mentioned, um, you mentioned that to me. There was, yeah, the, and um, about they, that was really fascinating. Yeah, they don't, they don't, they think it's odd to celebrate birthdays because, you know, that time just passes. You don't really have to do anything for that. But they, they celebrate when you have made a transition in life. And so I just, I don't know. But the, what, you know, I always think about like, since Guy has passed, you know, people will start to send messages and stuff about like the anniversary of her passing or, or a birthday or, you know, those kinds of things. And I appreciate people remembering her and, and supporting me and loving her, but it's just another day. And that's kind of how I was feeling about my birthday. You know, it's like, I miss her every day and uh, I want to make life beautiful every day so yeah it was just another day but I did appreciate the love because how can you not appreciate people just gushing on you it was really made my day yeah I agree with you that the that the that the date itself really doesn't mean anything but to have one day a year where people just reach out and acknowledge you it's got to got to feel pretty good I mean yeah when I, we get acknowledgement a lot anyway but having it the, the, the love that you sent me on my birthday, which was a big one for me, and, and I tried to return the favor on your birthday, which was a big one for you. Um, yeah. 
if we if we go by the even number rule or the big number rule, which you know the birthing instincts people that follow us, I tell you that anything that like when something's an even number, it's probably not true. But, but, <laughs> it might not be true. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what I mean by that, like twenty four hours of ruptured membranes or yes, six yes, feet apart yes, or that whole yes. thing. So yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's get started. Um, so I'm going to dive in. Last week I mentioned something, or maybe it was two weeks ago, about the some turmoil at Mana. Remember me mentioning that to you? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we said we'd look into it, and I know that you probably don't have real access to it, so I did actually. Great. And um, it's a really big deal, and I really wish I had some positive news to share. But it seems like re- reason and logic recently have just abandoned us, and. Um, Here's more of it from the Midwives Alliance of North America, okay? Um, They have long held that itself forth as an alliance that representation and advocacy for midwives of all types in the United States. And that's what you remember, right, Bliss? Yeah. Okay, so MANA's president is named Sarita Bennett, and she's an uh, osteopathic doctor and a certified professional midwife. And she openly stating that she no longer supports the autonomous practice of midwifery and is advocating for regulatory policies like physician oversight for both CNMs and CPMs. Now she is a DO, but she practices as a, as a midwife. And so she's the president of MANA and she's advocating for physician oversight for midwives. Right. So let me explain what that means. So she's a, she's a, a licensed midwife in Virginia where licensed CPMs are autonomous care providers. In Virginia, legislation is impacting the autonomy of all midwives, including CNMs, CMs, and CPMs, is currently pending implementation. Um, On Friday, July 16th, 2021, Dr. Bennett attended an online meeting of the Virginia Birth Center Alliance, which was recorded. And I listened, actually, I took 15 minutes out of my day to listen to the segment that they recommended, and it was pretty uh, upsetting, actually. During the meeting, Dr. Bennett stated that she did not and would not support autonomy for either CPMs or CNMs, but instead stated that she would advocate for physician oversight as out-of-hospital midwives. Uh, As a doctor of osteopathy, even though she's not practicing that way, she says her medical colleagues, which she puts in quotes, or they put in quotes in the article, strongly oppose autonomy for midwives to practice without a collaborative physician agreement. Well, that's a no-brainer. We know that that organized medicine wants to have control over everything like that. The problem with these sorts of things that's always occurred here is finding a a physician willing to collaborate. If you have to have a collaborative physician agreement and there's nobody that's going to collaborate with you, you've essentially made a de facto ban on being on being a midwife in that in that community. Well, and that's that that's like the, the the worst part of it. But the subtle part of it is that then we start to which you know. Unfortunately, midwifery is going in this direction anyway, but, um, you know, then it has us be a subclass of obstetrics, which is not what we are historically. We are midwives who practice and look at birth and handle things in a very different way, just like acupuncture might look at a disease very differently than a regular M- Western medicine MD might, you know? So that to me, that's the bigger problem. Yeah, it's, it's a separate profession and people don't recognize that because it's, you know, my profession wants to dominate um, 
for the, you know, we've talked about this for many, many reasons. They just, they feel like they want to dominate. It's, it's a lot of it's economic. A lot of it is ego. A lot of it is stupidity um, or just yeah. a long habit of not thinking something wrong. So she expressed her belief that supporting the midwifery model of care does not require credentialed midwives to exist. This is the president of MANA. And that Say, she does not, what? Say that one one more time. Uh, she expressed her belief that supporting the midwifery model of care does not require credentialed midwives to exist. That's in quotes, by the way. So she must have said it in okay. quotes. And that she does not support autonomy for midwives who own birth centers. She's also stated and has written letters to the Virginia ACOG leadership and other medical organizations to advocate for the restriction and marginalization of CPMs. On Monday, July 19th, 2021, Dr. Bennett made public comments on an international Facebook group with over 3,500 members. And she wrote, quote, credentialed midwives are no longer part of my thinking for how to protect physiologic birth, unquote. So they go on and they, the positions for which Dr. Bennett is advocating for physician oversight of, of hospital midwives and the public expression of the opinion that many midwives are untrained and incompetent dramatically contradicts the stated vision and mission of MANA. Um, Dr. Bennett's actions directly violate MANA's mission and vision statement, the mission of which is, quote, the mission of the Midwives Alliance of North America is to unite, strengthen, support, and advocate for the midwifery community and to promote educational, economic, and cultural sustainability of the midwifery profession. The Midwives Alliance of North America envisions midwifery, midwifery as a thriving, diverse, keyword here, autonomous profession in service to families throughout North America. Okay, so that's their mission. So, it, I mean, am I being absurd in thinking that, why is she the president of MANA? Why would, right. you, why, would said you want, she, why would you want to be the president of MANA? <laughs> her, her feelings changed, obviously. But she, you said that she was, um, asked to step down or she stepped down, right? Well, on July 22nd, we asked the MANA Board of Directors to protect the interests of U.S. midwives by immediately removing Dr. Bennett from her role as MANA's president. The MANA Board responded that they would discuss the situation at their next regularly scheduled board meetings. So mm -hmm. they didn't, the board did not see any urgency despite these statements made in July. Um, so they go on and say, MANA's chronic failure to reflect and advocate for the needs of all North American midwives has caused its membership numbers to dwindle. Mm -hmm. By the way, does this sound familiar to something I talked about a couple of weeks ago? Yes. The American, the American Medical Association? Yes. They, they don't care about their members. They've got, they've, they lose their, their way somehow. If this is what she feels like, she should start her own organization or she should do something different, but she should not be guiding a, a, an organization that has a mission statement like I just read and saying that these people are irrelevant. Um, we hope that a new generation of midwives will step into positions of local and national leadership, including at MANA, to help us collectively ensure that every midwife, no matter their license type and location of practice, can serve their clients safely and sustainably, and that the profession of midwifery can thrive in North America. Um, yeah, I would say that uh, MANA is self-destructing. And there's a lot of self-destructing going on in the world right now. I'm not sure why people think this way. I can't quite figure out. 
Um, everything needs to be more regulated. Remember, this gets back to my old premise of complicating the simple. It's not that difficult. It's not that complicated, but we always have to make things more complicated. Thoughts? I turned my <laughs> heater on. I turned my heater on and I forgot that it's really loud. So can I'm hear it. I can't hear okay. it. Okay, I'm waiting for it to go back off. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is why I stay out of a lot of this, you know? Um, unfortunately, I've seen um, so much cattiness. We talked about this a lot when I was with the midwives in Oregon. They're seeing the exact same thing. It's just, there's not a lot of cohesiveness, mm -hmm. you know? And it saddens me because I have this very romantic image of, of midwives and, and what I believed all midwives to be. I've been thinking about it for a very long time about having some kind of um, directory where there's different classifications because we're all called midwives. But, you know, they said that they're, um, people call them medwives, which we've talked about before. Um, which, you know, is very different than a traditional midwife or someone who is, who really, you know, wants to be more hands-off. So, you know, I agree with you. I thank you for looking into that and reading that um, so that we can understand more about what's going on, but it is, it is systemic, you know, it is across the board what's happening. And um, that's why I, you know, decided to practice as, as a soul practitioner and you know you said yeah you're off on your thing this is intentional you know I'm doing this on purpose because it's it's very hard to think clearly and to know what your truth is when you're inundated you know that's why I tell people to turn off the news and you know be with the people that are in front of them because it's yeah insanity yeah. insanity yeah. Um, I, saw, I saw something. So I, I saw something. A sign on a bridge yesterday. I was driving. It just said, "It said, you know, kill your TV." <laughs> yes, I love that one. <laughs> agreed. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Uh, yeah, it just uh, seems to me. It seems to me it's so self-destructive for the organization. I mean, if I was a yeah. midwife who didn't believe what she was saying, why would I pay dues for that? Why would I belong to that? And then it's, and you said it's the lack of cohesiveness. You're basically being div divisive. And don't we all sort of have the same purpose? And why does one person think that they're more right than the other person? I mean, you and I, we believe that our model of care is better all around, but we're not telling, I mean, <laughs> we're not saying, uh, we're not trying to get rid of the hospital model. I mean, it's not like we think no. that... Uh, you know, I think OBs are, are uh, and maybe people like uh, Dr. Bennett are going to make themselves obsolete and we don't even need to do anything. And I think the hospital model will do the same thing over time. Um, just not fast enough for me, but that's, that's exactly. the way it goes. Exactly. Okay. So in, a, in, in another topic, I have um, often talked about some of the crazy euphemisms and abuses of language that go on. And I get, I've given examples, things like, you know, is social distancing really social distancing or is it anti-social distancing? Or is, you know, when they say uh, someone's anti-vax, it's a pejorative. It doesn't mean you're anti-vaccine. It means you might be questioning about this vaccine. Um, same sort of thing with, you know, a fact checker. What's a fact checker? A fact checker is a person who's biased and hired by somebody to tell the other side 
that their information is incorrect. It's they're not fact checkers. I'll, as a matter of fact, when somebody says they're a fact checker, they're almost always wrong. Um, uh, other things that I have down here are like misinformation. You 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 call something misinformation, but is it? No, it's not. So these are kind of the euphemisms that go around. And and there's an a, recently on the same vein is the definition of vaccination. And the bliss, I don't know if you've been following this, but it's changed. And it's yeah, evolved. we talked about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to get the specific the precise wording. So prior to 2015. The definition of vaccination was an injection of a killed or weakened infectious organism in order to prevent the disease. Yes. From, from the dawn of vaccines until 2015, that was the definition. In 2015, they changed it to the act of, or, or vaccination is now the act of introducing a vaccine into the body to produce, to produce immunity to a specific disease. The key word is immunity. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was... Up until September of this year, which is right now, the definition for the last six years. But because the current experimental injection wasn't causing immunity, rather than not call it a vaccine or call it what it is, the CDC changes the definition of vaccine to be the act of introducing a vaccine into the body to produce protection from a specific disease. So they changed immunity to the word protection. So they just, they have a thing that isn't working. So rather than say it's not working, we'll just change the definition. So now we can say it's working. It's like, what? Okay. I know More insanity, more yeah, insanity. I, I love the fact that you say nothing because when you say nothing, I know that, that like, <laughs> I, I've, hit, I've, hit, I've hit the note. Hey, um, since we're we're going back and talking about some topics and questions from um, yeah. from our listeners, Mackenzie Parsons from Kentucky is expecting a baby, and she wrote to me about I had mentioned I had actually mentioned about a salve or placenta uh, that I was helping one of our past clients um, create a salve, but she asked me about if she wanted to do a tincture. So there are a lot of people who, you know, maybe not in Kentucky that um, do placenta encapsulation and all of that. So I wanted to let people know that if they wanted to create their own tincture, all they have to do is get a container. Usually we use a little tincture bottle that has a dropper, but you don't have to, you could just use any, you know, glass jar, get the highest proof of, uh, alcohol, usually it's vodka that you use. So all tinctures, when you use herbs and stuff, you use an alcohol-based or glycerin-based. Glycerin is usually a little bit um, sweeter, um, but most of them are done in alcohol. And you, you clip off, uh, rinse the placenta, clip off a piece, probably about as big as your thumb, put it in the alcohol and let it sit for six weeks. And then it's used for all kinds of things. But um, definitely hormone balancing for uh, cool. postpartum, for your cycle, um, and for menopause, which is great. The problem is that you have to wait six weeks to be able to use it in your postpartum period. And usually the what you would need in your postpartum, you might want to have sooner. So um, encapsulation is usually the way to do that. But you could also cut off pieces and put it in the freezer 
and throw it in a smoothie. I know, I know many of you are like, oh my God, she just asked me to eat my placenta. Um, you can't taste it. And if you don't know how to encapsulate, which, you know, it's really not that difficult to tell you the truth. It's just, you know, the process of a lot of people not wanting to handle a bloody organ, I think that uh, turns people off from learning. So anyways, I wanted to, to let Mackenzie know that that's how you make the tincture. I have two questions. Yeah. What, how do you dose yourself on that? Um, you just take a dropper full and it's not like medicine tinctures. You know, the thing about tinctures is they're not usually strong enough um, unless you're using something, uh, you know, because there are things in nature that can be poisonous. So you have to know what you're using, but um, tinctures are not usually strong enough to cause like serious side effects, like um, like if you're using medicine. Okay. So speak. And, it, and yeah. the other question would be is when you, if you're in a tincture, if you're in a little eyedropper bottle, not eyedropper, but you know, drop, dropper bottle. Dropper. Mm -hmm. And um, you start to run low. Can you just add more alcohol to that? Or do you have to get a new piece of placenta in there? No, you absolutely can continue to add alcohol and you have to let it sit again for six weeks. Um, it doesn't have to be kept in the refrigerator. You just put it in your medicine cabinet. I tell people so that when you brush your teeth or something, you take it out and give it a little, a little shake so that it can continue to infuse. Um, but yeah, it can be kept indefinitely. That's why you can use it for menopause. Wow. Good question. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I, um, it just, I, it's funny to me. I know that it won't, it won't, uh, I mean, maybe it'll ferment, but it won't, it won't uh, spoil in alcohol because the right. Bacteria can't do that, but it just seems like eventually it's going to run out of protein or it's going to run out of something, but you're saying that it'll, it'll last for years, right? Yeah. I mean, I, it will last for years, but I don't know how many people continue to do it over and over again, but yes, you can continue to use it that way. If people want to have a uh, birthing instincts podcast flashback to Dr. Stu's podcast, they can go to one of my early episodes <laughs> with, with Brian and they can see that it was titled um, Kung Pao Placenta. <laughs> and, and we did an episode uh brian couldn't believe that that people actually eat their placenta so uh that's that would be a um a fun thing to reminisce and go listen to that old podcast uh, you can find it on uh, yeah. apple podcast yeah i want to just well, make i won't i won't go off on, on a tangent about placentas we'll do a whole thing about placentas another day okay i want to make a i want to make just a quick announcement we have um i'll be in bozeman montana on september 30th october 1st uh for a breach seminar that I do, the Reteach Breach Seminar. And then coming to Southern California in early November is the um, uh, Breach Without Borders group. That's uh, Rick and Dave. Well, Rick's will be remotely from France. Um, and David Hayes will be there. And I think that um, um, Betty Ann Davis is coming down from Canada. I don't know how she's getting into the country. I'm not sure how they're letting her in, but, but uh, Betty Ann Davis will be there along with uh, David Hayes. So you can Go to the Breach Without Borders workshop. Um, uh, breachwithoutborders.org is their website, I mean. And if you want to look into that in Southern California, um, that would be great. So I just wanted to get that out there. Uh, also, you know, sometime during our podcast, you're going to hear some, uh, I don't know, uh, advertisements from our sponsors, I guess. And and right now- our partnerships. We have, yeah, our partnerships. That's a better word. Yeah. Our fellow yeah. traveling partnerships, and and we have um, silverettes, and we have uh, bam, bamboobies, bamboobies. Mm -hmm. So we really would like you to support them because they're one of the ways that we keep the podcast free, and we've been doing it free for forever, is by our sponsors, and uh, we put our credibility on the line. We only are going to let people sponsor the Birthing Instincts podcast who 
we believe in their products. So just yeah, and I love I love both of these products. I recommended that our our um, producers reach out to them because I would love to you know be in partnership with them, and and they agreed. So how fun is that? Yeah, so it really would help if you go there. When you when you leave the ad, you'll you'll know how to f- sign up for them and and use the uh, um, discount code. Yeah, what's it called? The discount code. Well, I don't know something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa and I are so excited to announce our Silverette partnership with the Silverette Nursing Cups. The issue is for me as a medical doctor, I have very little training in postpartum breastfeeding issues. So what can you tell us? Well, my clients have had such great results with breastfeeding issues and sore nipples using Silverette. So I'm delighted to tell you they're handmade in Italy of 0.925 sterling silver. Silver is naturally antibacterial, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial. Gently place on nipples between feedings and simply remove to breastfeed. No creams or oils are necessary. It's all natural. Anatomical shape for maximum comfort and available in two sizes, regular and extra large. So our listeners should go to www.silverettusa.com and use the code INSTINCTS for 15% off your purchase. That's www.silvertete.com and use the code INSTINCTS, I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S for 15% off your purchase. Okay, I want to move on to um, uh, a twin article I mentioned briefly in the last podcast that there was an article, um, and this is for all the... um, twin supporters and the twin trolls out there, um, that there was an article in the Green Journal, which is the most prestigious American journal on OBGYN, comparing the mode of delivery of monochorionic twins versus dichorionic twins. And I briefly said the conclusion was that monochorionic twin pregnancies are not at an increased risk of cesarean delivery when compared with their dichorionic diamniotic counterparts. So um, just in uh, less than a minute, um, Planned cesarean delivery does not reduce the risk of neonatal death and morbidity when compared with planned vaginal delivery for twins. I want to reiterate that because 80, 90% of people who get twins are told early on in their pregnancy that they're likely to have a cesarean section. That is planting seeds of doubt that is completely unnecessary. It more implies more about the institution or the, or the skill or confidence of your practitioner than it really does about the, the logic of what they're saying. This study was a retrospective cohort study of women undergoing delivery of twins in a single maternal fetal medicine practice in New York between the years 2005 and 2021. So that was what, 16 years worth of data. And what they said was for all women with a vaginal delivery of twin A, mode of delivery for twin B did not differ based on chorionicity. There was a less than 1% rate of combined vaginal cesarean births for both mono and, and, and dichorionic twins. And there was a high rate of breech extraction for twin B, 76% of monochorionic and 74% of dichorionic pregnancies were uh, the second twin was delivered by breech extraction, which is great, all right? I mean, it's meddling, yes, but at least the, this practice is practicing what they're supposed to be practicing. And that is a skill that I reiterate over and over again is getting lost because it's not being taught is the ability to, to reach up and get a second twin. Because I, I read a letter last week where they were already, the, the doctor was already telling the client that if the baby, the second twin, they need to hold her belly straight so the baby comes head down 
because if the baby's in any other position, she'd end up with a C-section for the second baby, which is crazy, not knowing how to do a breech extraction. Right. Not, not the, not the um, stabilizing the baby, the second twin um, station position. Um, that is a, a midwifery skill, but saying that, it, that she can't have a vaginal delivery and doesn't have the skills to be able to do it. She was is, adamant uh, that the baby, that they do that because the, if the baby, I, I'm, I'm maybe reading into the adamacy, but it was more like, if we don't do that and the baby turns sideways or whatever else, then we're screwed and that, and you're not right. screwed. Okay. Right. Right. Um, if you have the skill. Got it. In, in 2013, the New England Journal of Medicine published something called the twin birth study. And we mentioned it briefly before. And that demonstrated that planned cesarean delivery did not significantly affect the risk of fetal or neonatal death or morbidity as compared to planned vaginal delivery for twins. So in conclusion, they said that combined vaginal cesarean delivery occurs in approximately five to 10% of twin pregnancies. To me, that's, a, that's abhorrent. Yeah. Interesting, we observed a significantly lower number of vaginal cesarean deliveries at a frequency of less than 1% in our group, in their study. Um, our practice uses active second stage management for twin B. So in other words, what they do after twin A comes out is they, they generally immediately go up and they break the bag of twin B. And the twin B, if it comes down, head down, they push it out. If it comes in any other position, they reach up. And it looks like about 75% of the time they reached up and pulled out twin B. That's how I was taught. So that is typically what would be done in a hospital, but it's a whole lot better than going right to cesarean section. Um, further, yeah. senior personnel experience in intrauterine in inter twin manipulation are always present at a delivery. Always a key. Every hospital that does birthing should have people on hand who know how to do breach or twin birthing. And additionally, it appears that monochorionic diamniotic pregnancies are not at an increased risk of adverse neonatal outcome when compared with their diamniotic dichorionic counterparts. So for all my uh, Facebook trolls, um, it's just another paper in the Green Journal. Now you can go troll the Green Journal and have fun. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I spoke to a, um, a midwife yesterday um, who was referred by another midwife um, who specializes in twins, and she is happy to come on the podcast. She's leaving in a couple of days to go abroad. She works with um, Doctors Without Borders, and so it, we may not be able to get her on the podcast until she returns just because it's so challenging as you guys have seen with um, my internet can be challenging and I'm here in the, you know, here in the States. So, um, but I am working on that. And I think it would be really interesting to hear you guys have a conversation of, uh, from a obstetrical perspective of delivering twins versus a midwifery perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm a, I am a hybrid, but, but I was trained in the obstetrical model. So I'd like to hear yeah. Yeah, like yeah. we got we get a whole list of people that we need to get on the podcast and i just don't know how you know we need to do more than one a week but that's not going to happen <laughs> everybody write this tell her she needs to be we need to do more than one a week okay because my I, agreement I, while i'm on the road only the like next couple months is one a week but after yeah, that we yeah, can you know when we came on this morning i was um like i told you i wasn't feeling really happy and even though i'm reading, <laughs> reading strange news and some that but just talking to you for an hour makes me happy. 
just think how many more times I could be happy in a week if we did it more often. You're like, I need more. I need more. <laughs> more. More. Well, more meat. That was my first word. Well, I want, I want, well, I want our listeners to know that I've been trying to, I'm going to use the word seduce just to be fun, but I've been trying to seduce Stu into doing a West Coast farm. Wouldn't that be awesome, you guys, if uh, Stu and I had a property with all kinds of little cottages and people could come and birth there and he could train people how to do breach. And I was thinking I could do my traditional midwifery school. So if you guys like this idea, uh, let's let's do a campaign where we can find some people who want to who want to fund that, because I think that would be awesome. And you know what? I've been driving by. um hotels that have you know that have like because of covid or whatever are not busy that would be perfect because they ha already have those little huts so anyways it's a great idea then you can see you me know, all the time i mean if you really wanted to affect the future generations of the of the world you know um the gates foundation could could do something to support birthing as opposed to everything else that they're doing <laughs> right right but, you know me, Stu, though, be for something and against nothing. So I'm just going to keep saying positive things. Okay. Okay. <laughs> How's that working? <laughs> Never mind. Pretty good. Don't, don't answer Pretty that. Good. Okay. All right. Pretty good. So a, a couple of quick things on, um, on the um, experimental injection. Uh, Robert Malone, uh, who is a very well-regarded uh, um, researcher who invented the mRNA vaccine technology, actually, um, has stated uh, overtly that he thought that this vaccine should, or this, yeah, we're going to call it a vaccine now because they changed the definition so we can just call it a vaccine. Um, I'm not. Okay. That he thought that this <laughs> experimental injection should, should have been pulled immediately back in February or March of last year. Anyway, um, he was interviewed for a story of, uh, and, and he goes, it goes on, talks about Israeli researchers found that people in the country vaccinated with Pfizer's COVID-19 shot were 13 times more likely to contract the Delta variant of the CCP virus and 27 times more at risk of symptomatic disease compared to those who have recovered from COVID-19. So the title of the story is Natural Immunity Longer Lasting Than Protection from the COVID-19 Vaccine, says Dr. Robert Malone. Duh. Okay. Duh. And, um, um, and where did those numbers, where did those numbers come from, Stu? Where did, Israel, where did you get it, those numbers from? It's from a, a paper that's been uh, presented in Israel, um, looking at their population. So they, they've seen... Yeah, so they've seen people who have gotten vaccinated and then got sick with the Delta variants, and then they they created those statistics. Well, Israel is a great petri dish for this because Israel is a small country, six or seven million people, of which eighty percent or so have been vaccinated, all of them with the Pfizer vaccine, mm -hmm. um, with the National Health Service. So all the records are collated into one place, sort of like Canada, a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. so they can they can look and they can do this study and they came out with this data, and you know it's it, it's going to be hard to refute the data when it when it but it, they'll just ignore it is what they'll do, okay. Um, so he goes on and says, uh, the, even though the authorities continue to urge everyone regardless of prior infection to get a vaccine, I mean, and you've heard that, 
that, I mean, look at the president just basically said that we're going to mandate that private sector workers who work for companies more than 100 people are going to have to get a vaccine. I don't think that's going to hold up in court. I don't, I think there's going to be mass resignations or mass protests, but nonetheless, um, it doesn't take into account, and you've mentioned this every time we talk about this, it doesn't take into account natural immunity. So here's a study that shows that natural immunity is actually better than vaccine immunity, and that's going to be completely ignored. The Israeli study, Malone says, seems to indicate that the breadth and durability of the immune response was superior with the natural infection and recovery. Yeah. And I wrote my notes on the, in the margin. I always write little notes. I said, why would we think otherwise? That's true of every disease, that natural immunity is as good or better than anything you can get from a vaccine and longer lasting. So why in this one did they start stating before they even knew because the disease has only been around for a year and a half, why would they even say that, that natural immunity is worse than the vaccine other than to promote the vaccine, which is all propaganda? There's no other way they could say it because they don't even have any data. There's just no data. <laughs> okay. There's also evidence that there's a significant six to 20 fold improvement in protection from infection and disease associated with the natural immunity acquired from prior infection compared to that conferred by the um, quote vaccine unquote. Um, so there's the funny part though. The CDC didn't immediately respond to a request for comment from the Epoch Times. The agency has told the Epoch Times in the past that it doesn't comment on papers that aren't authored by the agency. Think about that for a second. Yeah. CDC says in this particular time, it doesn't comment on papers that aren't authored by the agency. But doesn't the CDC use papers published in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine and other, and other articles? They quote them all the time. So what are they talking about? That they're in bed together. Yeah, and it says if our guidance needs to be changed, we'll base that on our own research and studies. Well, but you're, you've, you've been taking, you've been making your guidance based on other research and studies from all over the world all the time. How do you say stuff like that? You know, and ah, I just don't, I don't understand. And I don't understand why these reporters would ask follow-up questions and they would just be dismissed. But if, most of the time when you see it on TV or something like that, um, the reporter asks a question, the, the guy gives an answer that's completely tangential or doesn't answer the question and there's no follow-up. Yeah. And you want to scream at the TV. Anyway, so natural immunity, big deal. I keep saying the, the same word, but it's systemic. You know, it's, you go back to, we're ignoring what's happening on our planet. We're ignoring how our babies are being born. You know, we've been fighting these fights for a really long time and people want a pill. They want to be saved. They want something quick. They, you know, it's all of the attention span it's all connected um and so this is this is a much deeper issue that we're dealing with and it's coming out in this way and when we first got locked down you know we talked about maybe this would be a time when we would have a massive change in our culture and i really was hoping that this was that moment for um reflection and that you know we would we would come together and, and think about taking care of ourselves better as building our natural immunity. And it, and it just didn't happen, you know? So we have to go deeper. We have to think more about how each individual person 
has been able to swallow this pill so easily? Like, what is that about? And I love what you talked about last podcast about, you know, this, this warfare, this mental warfare. And I think that that really is where the solutions are going to come from. And I don't know how, and it's definitely, like you said, it's not happening fast enough for my liking. If the, if the CDC, if the National Institute of Health, if the World Health Organization were really interested in health, then they would have done what you just said. They would have said to people early in the pandemic or even before the pandemic, they wouldn't have to wait till people, till this because it's just normal, healthy behavior. They would have said, yeah. you know, get eight hours of sleep a night, take vitamin D, lose weight, eat well. Lower your stress. Exercise smile a lot, hug people, all right? What they yeah. did was everything yeah. I just said, yeah. they either ignored or told you to do the opposite. Don't hug people, yeah. don't, don't go outside, don't talk to anybody, don't be happy, <laughs> be miserable. I mean, everything you could do to suppress your immune system is what they told you to do. So clearly it's not about health. And this gets, you know, we were talking about the recall and the Gavin Newsom thing and how he was, you know, had this dinner at the French Laundry and how that's so hypocritical and it is hypocritical, but it, but it, it's bigger than that because what it implies when you see these elite people ignoring the edicts that they give us is not that it's hypocritical. It's that they don't believe what they're telling you is true because if they believed it was dangerous, they wouldn't do what they do. They wouldn't go to a hairdresser shop when all the other hairdresser shops are closed and not wear a mask. They wouldn't be caught not wearing masks except putting them on for a photo op, you know, they, they wouldn't do that. So they don't believe anything that they're telling us is true. And yet they tell us anyway, and you're right. And then there's this mass psychosis where people just follow along. Um, and in certain countries, it's horrible. Uh, you know, I, every month, every podcast, I think I mentioned my friends in Australia and it's, I just can't even imagine the Australians have a, you know, I, I would have thought they would have had some liberty in their DNA. I mean, they were a prison colony to begin with, and now they're almost like a prison colony again. It's sort of weird that it's gone full circle like that. All right. So on a, on a lighter note, I got this letter from Jen in Yorkville, wherever Yorkville is. She says, uh, I'm currently expecting quadruplets, and they've been told many times over that I should expect to prepare for a cesarean section. I would like to deliver naturally with not with not interventions, if at all possible. I have no idea how to find someone who support this goal. Do you have any recommendations for providers in my area or how I might go about finding one? Is this even a possibility or should I give up on that now? Okay. So here's what I wrote. to me. Yeah, here's what I wrote to her, but I'll, I'll have a comment afterwards. I wrote, wow, Jen, amazing news. A preemptive congratulations. I do not know of anyone who will entertain the idea of a vaginal birth in your scenario. There is just not the skill, incentive, or bravery to even consider this in the medical world. And this is not something conducive to an out-of-hospital situation as the babies are likely to come a bit premature and need attention we cannot provide in the home. In a perfect world, I would love to be in a setting to offer you this with an operating room and nursery team standing by just in case, but we do not live in a perfect world <laughs> as it is. And it might be best to put your efforts toward constructing the best team and hospital scenario you can. All the best. Yeah. Right. Right. 
mean, and I have visions. Listen, I, I have visions of being in a, in a setting, would have to be in a hospital probably, where she pushes out baby A, and then we see what baby B does. And if baby B comes down head first, she pushes out baby B. And as long as the other babies are fine, you just keep waiting for the next one. If, if the one sideways or transverse, just go reach up and pull one up, pull them out. One, two, three, and just pull them out. And you could do that. All right. I mean, they do it in, I don't know, nobody reaches up in dogs and does it, but you know, they have like puppies coming out. No, but that's a good point. What? Nobody reaches up inside of a dog or any other animal that has a litter. And, you know, the thing that saddens me about this is this is a woman who is pregnant, who's going to be a mother, who has to ask permission about how she can deliver her babies. Now, there's risks. Absolutely. You know, there's risks of, that she needs to understand that if she's not in an environment that could support her babies, some of them might not make it, which is ha what happens in litters yeah and um but that should be her choice and that's what saddens me so much is that you know she she feels like she has to ask permission for how she delivers her children and it's just if we just and, take and no it, one and no one will help her and oh no, no. Right. that's why what, that's why i made a sad face as a matter of fact if, if she tried to do this without if she tried to do it or refuse refuse what they were recommending when she was in labor and she'll probably go into labor at like 31, 32, 33 weeks, maybe 34 weeks, um, just because the, the uterus gets so big. Um, yeah. But um, they, they would then call Child Protective Services on her. A hundred percent. Right. So, yeah. yeah, we're less free every day. Yeah. I'm feeling it today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, another thing. Hey, by the way, I watched Eric Clapton last night talk about his adverse reaction to the COVID vaccine. Have you seen his interview? No, I have not. You want to say? I'll send it to you. It was really, it was, it was, it was really interesting. I think you'll appreciate it as a dad and as someone who, um, you know, knew before he even took it that he didn't really think it was the right thing for him. And then he had pretty serious adverse reactions. So he's, he wants to talk about it because he feels like not enough people are talking about it. So where yeah, did, I'll send it where to did you. you where, we'll, did you, where did you see it? So our listeners can um, find it. YouTube and we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So the California Medical Quality Care Collaborative sounds like a wonderful organization, doesn't it? Which is, yeah. a, which is collaborating with ACOG on a, um, a online forum to discuss, um, the title of it is called A Pandemic of the Unvaccinated, a discussion forum on COVID-19 vaccine confirmation. And it's gonna be a seminar, it's coming up next week and they only allow 50 people to join in the seminar. I signed up for it. <laughs> so I'm gonna listen in. Hey. And it's about, it's the description of the course or the, the seminar is, the, or the discussion, excuse me, is vaccine hesitancy among the pregnant population is a significant issue that is a main contributor to severe COVID-19 illness in this group. Okay, now everything about that sentence I would refute. All right. But you're just gonna listen in, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. But I would say, is it a significant issue? 
And is there a lot of severe COVID-19 illness in pregnant, in, in pregnant women? And maybe there is, but I haven't heard about it. And I still think it's, even though it's higher than non-pregnant women, it still gets back to that actual risk thing we always talk about versus relative risk. Who cares what relative risk is? We need to know what the denominator is so we know what the actual risk is. And it's still very, very small for pregnant women with COVID to end up in the, you know, in the hospital, all right? So it sounds to me that they have, they're gonna have strategies on opening up discussion and effectively answering patient questions. But I know what their mission is, is to convince people to have, how to convince people to have the vaccine. So it's gonna be a skew, it's gonna be how to skew your counseling is gonna be what it's about. I know I'm going in there with a, with a jaded sense, but I'm gonna go and listen. But they had you submit questions and I don't remember exactly the wording I used for my question, but it had to do about um, ACOG guidelines about recommending the vaccine for pregnant women and breastfeeding women. And how can they do that? And where does their certainty come from? Because you've heard me talk about it. It's the people that are certain that scare the jeepers, right? Mm -hmm. And why would anyone in this age group risk getting the vaccine? What's, what's the, the risk benefit ratio in your eyes? So if I have a chance to ask the question, I will ask the question. I think we'll all be anonymous there. It'll be 50 people. It won't be a screen where there's 50 people. 50 little boxes on the screen. So, um, but I might chime in, we'll see, but I'm going to watch it and I'll, I'll try to report on it next week. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah, I'm going to skip this one. This is an article I don't want to have time for. Yeah. Uh, we should get to our topic. Yeah. So let's get to our topic. <laughs> All right. So um, if somebody out there who's seven years old or 57 years old decided today yeah. that they wanted to become a midwife, yeah. What would you recommend to them? <laughs> what would I recommend? Um, well, I think that the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because you've gotten letters and I've gotten letters recently of people who are uh, being forced to get a vaccine in order to move forward with nursing school and, and other avenues. Um, and, and it's, it's a really sad state of affairs that in order to pursue your education, you feel like you have to put yourself into a situation. It's very similar to what we were talking about with my son accepting his job and, and taking the vaccine. So um, the, the normal way or the, the ways that were available to me when I got licensed is um, you can become a CNM, which is a certified nurse midwife. So you would go to nursing school um, and then continue on to get your specialty as a midwife. Um, a lot of people who are looking at this more as a stable way to support themselves and their family um, will choose the CNM route. And I get it. Um, you know, you usually have shifts. Um, you can, CNM is recognized all over the country. So you could go into any state and be able to get a job. Um, you know, you're, you're able to get jobs in hospitals, which licensed midwives or, um, certified professional midwives are not, um, in most states. I think there was an exception here in Northern California, but really yeah, don't hear. I, I would just add that, um, you know, I know that that gives you some stability to, to work anywhere you want. But I, 
you know, and I think you would agree with me that we, I don't feel like working in a hospital right now is, is something that is desirable. Uh, not for me. Um, but you know, I'm just trying to let people know what their options are and, um, you, you will, uh, you know, because of what's happening currently, you will be forced to have a vaccine. There's lots of nurses who are stepping down from their positions and, and no longer, um, going to be working in the hospital. there There are labor and delivery units around the country that are shutting down because half of their staff refused to get vaccinated. So they're quitting and they don't have enough staff to staff their labor and delivery units. I mean, I, I don't know that a lot of them. I've, I read about one or two on the East Coast someplace. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think that's sad that the uh, delivery units are closing down. But in some ways, I'm encouraged by that because I hope that that starts to get some attention that, you know, there are a lot of people who do not want to get the vaccine. I've spoken to a lot of people who have gotten it just because they didn't want to make waves or because they had to. So, you know, well, in order to get numbers are those... you're going to have to have pain and sacrifice and and uh, otherwise, otherwise, the, the, this sort of tyranny will not stop. That's right. CNM is the nursing route that people could go to to become a midwife. You can work at home or create a home birth practice as a CNM as well. So you don't necessarily have to work in a hospital. You could work at a birth center or create your own home birth practice. Um, CNMs tend to be able to do some things that uh, licensed midwives or certified professional midwives cannot, which it varies from state to state. And my my understanding or my knowledge base is really California because that's where I've been for so long. But um, sometimes they have to have uh, supervision from a physician. Um, but they, uh, and sometimes they're restricted more in terms of what kind of deliveries they can do. Um, but they can prescribe, um, birth control and, um, they can prescribe, uh, different medications and licensed midwives and CPMs cannot. So, um, I'm just going to say CPM because in, uh, California it's a LM. That's what I am an LM, a licensed midwife, but CPM is the more nationally recognized, um, certification. So we're uh, certified professional midwife. That's what CPM stands for. Um, so in that, in that avenue, um, there are schools that are called Meek accredited, which is one of the ways that NARM, which is the, the test National Association of Registered Midwives, um, gives the test for becoming a CPM. And so there's Meek accredited schools that you can, most of them are distance programs. The one I did in uh, San Diego, Nijoni was actually, you, you went into school and did your um, work with your teachers, which were, most of them were all midwives. Um, but most of them are distance programs. So they send you modules, you, you do independent study and you do the modules on your own and then you send them back in. Um, and then eventually you have to sit for the board exam, which is an all day exam um, and have a preceptorship like I did with um, Dr. Fishbein, Dr. Stu um, and other lots of different midwives um, to be able to get your skills and the numbers that you need to be able to um, sit for that exam. Um, there is a, another path 
um, which I don't know as much about, but where you don't have to necessarily go to the Mika credit school, but you have to have an apprenticeship. And um, so you'd have to look into that, but that is another avenue for some people who, you know, maybe aren't in an area where they have access to go to the schools or um, would like to do it more independently. Um, and then there's midwives who are not licensed, um, who do not take the exam, who um, either in their state are not required to carry a license or um, by choice, they feel like they're, if they get the license, they're gonna be more restricted. And so I, I think that it's important to say that those midwives do exist. They used to be called lay midwives. Um, a lot of the midwives prefer un unregulated um, or just midwife because historically we didn't need a stamp of approval from a state or from a gatekeeper to tell us that we were, we passed the test. Um, we were the women who held a body of knowledge and were able to support women. And I get often get frustrated um, by the limitations of being able to support women, you know, in the ways that they want to. I think it's absolutely unjust. Um, and so I do understand why um, some women decide not to get licensure. So there are two um, organizations that I would say that you could connect with if you feel like you um, would like to know more about something that is a little bit outside of the norm. Um, and those are the Free Birth Society, although I would say the caveat um, that I, there's a lot of things I love about the Free Birth Society, but they are uh, outspoken about transgender, and I don't necessarily agree with that. So I, because I'm mentioning them, I want to make sure that I, I say that part, but they do have definitely are thinking outside of the box. Um, and then ND Birth is another one where you can learn a lot about um, being a birth keeper or a midwife um, without necessarily getting licensed. So right, those are the different paths. And it's yeah, you can do these things at your you own say? pace. You can do these things at your own pace too with these things. Where sometimes yeah. with the schools, you you know you there's a curriculum and you have to, you know, you go through it and it takes three years or whatever it is to do it. I think with people like any birth and stuff like that, there's no time limit put on you. Well, the, you know, with, there's six years, you have to get all your numbers and stuff within six years, or you have to kind of start over again, which, you know, makes sense because things change, right. Um, in the way that we're being tested and stuff in terms of studies and all of that. I don't, I don't think that birth changes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I can't, I can't believe you thinking that birth changes. <laughs> no, I don't believe yeah. that, but I understand from the, from the paradigm that they're coming from that after, after a certain amount of time, you know, I know some people who are 10, 15 years and haven't sat for the boards yet. So, um, you can take your time, but you're going to definitely have challenges. Well, things have to things have to change, Bliss, because otherwise administrators wouldn't have a purpose. So the purpose of an administrator is to administrate. It's basically to to insert themselves between the doers and the people that want the service, and in order to create, justify, and create their their job existence, they have to create keep creating things. This I saw this 
all those years at the hospital, the administration was always inter, inter, intervening in what we did. Everything had to have a policy. Everything had to have a written protocol. Everything in the written protocols would have to be updated every, it's like you said, these things don't change that often, but they, they complicate the simple by, by constantly tinkering with things because the more they tinker with things and the more yeah. levels of, of bureaucracy they put in something, the more they justify their positions of being there where they actually, and I don't mean this as a, a pejorative against individual people, but they actually provide nothing. It's kind of like they're middlemen in the, in, in the process between, between the, the client and you. Yeah. In your, your model, the client goes to you. In the medical model, there's layers of stuff in there. There's administrative people, there's insurance companies, there's hospital admissions people, there's all this stuff that's in between you and the client. Yeah. And they and, and, and things never get simpler. They only get more complicated. Yeah. No, it's okay. Um, I, I, which is why I chose to create my practice the way that I did, um, because I wanted to keep it simple. And I, you know, I, I've been, I would love to be able to accept, you know, the state insurance so that um, low income families can get access to my care, but they make it financially impossible to be able to, to operate as a home birth midwife. Um, and also they restrict what you are able to do. And so I just stay out of the insurance companies. I stay out of the state mandated stuff as much as I possibly can um, so that I can really be able to come from the knowledge and wisdom that I have as an individual provider and continue to, to, to know what the truth is and not have it get mucked down, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So the other thing that I wanted to circle back to that you pointed to when we first started the topic is that it is a very complex time right now. And these are the, these are the paths that have been laid out for us, but we may have to start creating some new some new things. We might have to start thinking outside of the box even more to be able to simplify it and provide quality care for women who want, or families who want autonomy and choice. Um, and I do think that, you know, as I'm starting to like really think about what is it gonna look like for me to reintegrate? Do I wanna continue to do midwifery? Um, where, where will I feel safe practicing? Where will I be able to get like-minded people who will support me? I definitely believe that I'm going to have part of what makes me, me in my practice is that across the board, I believe in bodily autonomy and I believe in choice that has to do with masks, mandates, um, and all of the things that came before that GBS, gestational diabetes, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, I can't go to jail. So I'm not going to be able to deliver twins or, or breaches, at least here in, in California, but I could in Oregon. Um, so, you know, those are going to be some of the decisions that I'm going to have to make as I figure out where I'm going to land. But those of you who are starting on this path and you have the passion and you know that you feel frustrated. I hear from so many doulas, you know, that feel so frustrated about being in the hospital. 
you, you, you hit the nail on the head Stu. you know, we're going to have to, things are going to have to get a little uncomfortable, but you have to fight for what's right. And we have to keep speaking about it. So. Yeah. It's interesting. There's been a lot of chatter lately on the physicians for informed consent, uh, chatterboard or chatterboard. <laughs> yeah. I don't want you to call it, but, but we're the message board, I guess, where they send people. Chatterboard. Chatterboard's funny though. I like chatterboard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, because it is chatter about uh, private membership associations. Um, yeah, yeah. We did a podcast a long time ago. Uh, I did it with uh, Angie from Nebraska, the Nebraska Birthkeeper, I think it was. And she, yeah. was, she was, it was, it was something at the time that very few people had heard of. But now because medical boards and state licensures are becoming so draconian, um, the writing is on the wall, as I said in previous podcasts, that, that as a condition of licensure, Next time I renew, if things keep going the way they're going, you know, they're going to ask me if I'm vaccinated. And if I'm not vaccinated, I may not be able to renew my license. Right. But there are, and this might work for midwives too. A private membership association is like belonging to a, uh, you sign up for a club and you, you, it's outside the realm of state and federal government because it's a private club and it has constitutional protection from what I understand. I don't understand the nuances of it. It obviously takes lawyers to, to design it and figure it out. But if people sign up to be in your club and they agree to be cared for by you, the, the, the thought process, and it seems to be working in some instances and hasn't really been challenged too much as from what I can tell, is that it, it's allowing people to practice medicine without a license. Because people are just agreeing to in, in sort of a contract between you and them to do yeah. a service. And yeah. what does the government have to do with it? It's kind of like the people who think that, why does the government decide? Why is the government sticking its nose into marriage? It's the point of a marriage license. Why does the state have to endorse it? Mm -hmm. All right. You two people get into a contract, but the state has then endorsed it so that now, you know, all the laws and inheritance and, and, uh, and uh, power of attorney and all that stuff. So they, they've, they've complicated it all, but it really is just a bond between two people. Why can't that sort of thing be extended into the medical realm and midwives and physicians who, who want to practice the way they want to practice and people who want them to be their caregivers um, go into an agreement outside of licensing. I mean, there's nothing about licensing that guarantees that the person that's taking care of you is any good. It's kind of like board certification, the same sort of thing. You know, I mean, if a, if a doctor gets a DUI, he can lose his license to practice. Doesn't mean he's a bad doctor. Doesn't mean he might've been the best doctor ever, but he, he, made a, he, he made a goofball thing and he drove home from a party and he got pulled over, all right? Um, why, should the, why should we be under that amazing threat when everybody else who works for a regular job isn't gonna lose their job because they got a DUI? You know, why, why are we submitting that? Why am I paying for that every two years, a large amount of money to, to, to have these people then regulate us? Yes, I think that there's, you know, you know the free market does, isn't always perfect, but this system isn't perfect either. This system is draconian. And there are gonna be people that sell snake oil and get away with it. And there are, but, most of the team, the, the free market will decide whether a restaurant or a doctor or anybody else is good because people will go and they'll, they'll rate them on Yelp. <laughs> you know, they'll, 
they'll they'll tell their friends that this this guy's really good or this guy's really bad or this restaurant is really good or it's really bad and so that's how you know that's how it's worked for for centuries and suddenly now everything is over over regulated and the path you know the path to being a, an obstetrician it's a noble profession it's been, but it's been corrupted and it's been by the time you get through eight, you know four years of college and four years of medical school and four years of residency and a lot of debt it's going to be very it's very hard not to be indoctrinated in the way that they want you to do things and and i would encourage people to go into medical school only because it's those future doctors that are going to make a change in the profession because the pre- it's not going to change with the cr- people that are currently in our leadership they're not going to ever change so but you have to be willing to like hold your, you know, plug your nose and hold your breath for eight years. It's not easy to do. No, right. no. And most people, you know, most people can't keep the same passion or uh, perspective that they went in with when, you know, you're learning all of this information. It's very hard. I mean, I think it's part of the big reason that a lot of our colleagues won't make the leap to doing breach delivery or supporting, uh, uh, home transports and things like that is because th- th- there's nothing in it for them. And there's only, neg- there's only negatives. So this, these ideas of looking outside the box and coming up with new parameters or you know, like you said earlier, I mean, I still love the idea of us having a Western farm and yeah. having, a, having an ability to do that. But that would, re- it would require us a, a, a huge um, initial capital investment to do that. And, you know, you and I, <laughs> we can't, we, we're not going to be able to, to, to do that um, on our own. Right. So, exactly. Anyway, you think that becoming a midwife is a great profession, but people are going to have to find their own path. And I do, I think as much as people thought I would tell people not to go into medicine, I wouldn't tell you that, but I, I think you have to be prepared to get bombarded. Um, well, I also, you know, I said this, I said this a couple of podcasts ago, you know, I believe that this is a passion. I believe that this is a mission for me on the planet and it's not easy. And, uh, you know, just the profession itself isn't easy, but then we go into all of these things that you and I are talking about with the outside forces that make it just, you know, really challenging. So don't get into it if you think that you're getting into it because it's uh, glorious and romantic and uh, you're going to make a lot of money because that's just not true. Um, but if, if your heart keeps telling you that this is the thing that you should be doing, if it keeps calling to you, it's beautiful. It's, it's a, it's a life worth living, I think. Um, but I, you know, getting into it as a profession, um, may not, may not give you all of the things that you're looking for. Hey, I wanted to do a little shout out because I promised them I'd do this a while ago. Um, I, I mentioned that I had gone to see, um, a birth center in Sacramento and they are hiring a fourth midwife. Um, and, uh, it says we are ready to welcome our fourth midwife into the California birth center family team in Rockland, California, which is very close to Sacramento. I asked them to write me a couple of bullet points. Um, of what they were looking for. And it ended up being like a two page document. So I'm not going to read that for them, but they are looking for a midwife and they are uh, like-minded about uh, 
bodily autonomy and freedom of choice when it comes to some of the topics that we have been discussing on the podcast. So if you are a licensed, I mean, if you are a, um, a certified professional midwife or a CNM and you are looking for a position with people who whose hearts are in the right place. Um, this looks like a beautiful team to be working for. If it wasn't in Sacramento, I might be considering it myself. So just wanted okay. to give them a little shout out. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I have to run. Yeah. And I was just <laughs> going to say that if you're an MD and you're looking to get out of the medical world and you, I mean, you're an OB and you're looking to get out of the medical world and you want to come and do uh, <laughs> home birthing and wherever I might end up right now, I'm still in Southern California. I, just don't know what's going to happen with that after today, yesterday, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to hire. <laughs> Reach out. Reach so, out. Uh, so listen, good to see you. You uh, too. Get out, get out and take a walk today. It'll make you feel better. Yeah, I have Pilates today, so that will make me feel worse, but then I'll feel better after. <laughs> okay. Anyway, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, you know, as we always say in the closing, so I won't say it again because it says it in the closing, but but I, we really appreciate you tuning in for us and, and supporting us. And please, please, if you can, and you even if you don't need them, order some uh, silverettes and some, some bamboobies for, for your friends or for a, a, a birth shower or a, a gift or whatever, because it's they're great products. We support them. And they by you supporting them, you are supporting us. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Stu. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 